Welcome to this week's CTO Studio episode. We talk about engineering culture, product management, KPIs, and we ask a crucial question which none of us could answer. How do you measure productivity? I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. It, it looks something like this. Welcome to the CTO Studio. I'm your host, Etienne de Bruin. The CTO Studio is where we chat with CTOs building amazing products with incredible teams. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Michael Young, Robert Swisher, Brant Cooper, welcome to the CTO Studio. Thanks. We are at a round table for those who can't see us. And I am supremely happy to have these gentlemen around the table. And we're happy to be here. Thank you. All, th all three of us, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Michael, you're former CTO of Redfin, former CTO of Classy. Is it Classy or Classy? Uh, classy. And now you're doing some technology consulting around the due diligence process, uh, investigating or sort of looking into people's technology strategy, their stack, and helping acquirers make good decisions, but also helping startups in the process to kind of see what they don't know that they don't know, or perhaps deflate the bubble a little bit mm -hmm. around what they think they do know. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've I've been in technology for 20 plus years, been kind of in a CTO or chief architect role for, you know, over 15 of that, the last 15. And now I've kind of crossed over to the other side and I'm working more with the investors, private equity um, to not only do the due diligence for them. And, you know, a large part of that is just simply translating the technology, you know, going from AWS and, you know, technical bits and bytes to here's the business value, here's why we're doing it, here's why it's valuable. You may not see the long-term potential of, you know, certain things in the technology, but it's there, or here's some risks you may not be aware of. So being a bridge between the investors who are finance people, basically, by and large, and the technology people has been, been really interesting, really fun. And, you know, being able to pass on some some advice and recommendations to the startups that I see, many of them, very early stage series a type in uh, uh investment so it's been fun are you seeing products and innovations that are exciting you right now or is it we mostly focus on like business SaaS. so to be to be honest it's not like people are inventing you know new you know really incredible secret things you know they're really looking at business problems and coming up with systems that are you know well optimized to solve that it might be a a new platform for dentist offices to to you know um, interact with you know customers and introduce things like net promoter score things like that things that might be sensible in a larger company but all these niche businesses just you know they haven't quite caught up to some of these um broader platforms out there are you, are you geographically focused at all are these san diego california Silicon no Valley? no been no. all over all over east coast midwest you know uh, uh, the 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 folks that i work with tend to invest in areas that are not as mainstream so i actually have not done a deal in silicon valley it's usually some you know some uh some smaller you know mostly smaller cities and other areas so they, they're kind of zigging when everyone is zagging really how many 
of your conversations are with the CTO and how compared to just with the whole founding team? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the purpose of technical due diligence is really to focus on the technical team. So by and large, you know, we are um, talking to the CTO, but oftentimes there's no CTO. So who do you talk to? So it might be the CEO who's very technical or a COO who's running the engineering team or even um, you know, a couple of cases where there's there's really no executive. And so you're just talking to the technical lead you know, or a senior kind of developer engineering manager type. And the CEO is not technical, but they're managing them. And so you know, between those, you're having that conversation. So um, it's, it's interesting. Those are, those are a little bit more challenging than the seasoned CTO who has everything in his head and kind of can answer all the questions right off the bat. How often is that part of your recommendation saying, hey, you guys need to uh, go find a CTO here really quickly? Uh, it, it is it is it is fairly common, especially when you don't have one. <laughs> it's funny how often I talk to founders who are, I would say, you know, in angel stage, who come to me because they want a CTO, and how often I say to them, you know, you don't need a CTO, you just need a product. Just get that product built. I usually ask them, do you have a, do you have an idea of the solution that you want to present to your market? Um, do you have maybe 20K and then uh, do you have some sort of unfair advantage that you can sort of help insert this product into whatever distribution, like your uncle is a, somebody who can also use this product or, and for me, you know, if you have those things happening, I feel like you can just sort of outsource development and just get it done so that you can insert something. That's way too practical at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what they're hearing is from somebody they've heard, they, you know, they've talked to a mentor who told them, no, no, you can't get money without a, without a CTO. Oh. So that's why they're running out and getting a CTO. Oh, so, so they, okay. Right. So instead of, instead of actually launching a product that people want, right, and, and then figuring out what's the management team that's going to make me succeed, they're going like, no, no, no I'm, I want investment, so I, I need a CTO. Or I think people are confused <laughs> what that even is, right? They're like, oh, I need a CTO. And really, you need like a technical person to, to do That's the technical work, right? Yeah. But you don't need a senior executive in an early stage company like that. I, I think that's exactly right, right? It's, I need, I need a, a technical co-founder. Yeah. And since they're a co-founder and they're technical, they're my CTO. Right, exactly. <laughs> when, when is a good time to have a CTO, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, the earlier the better, but like, you know, I've, I've certainly seen companies that get to, you know, several million in revenue without one and the business looks good and, and somehow they figured it out, you know, whether it was a semi-technical CEO or even a very technical CEO kind of filling in and then, you know, managing the team. I think, I think the, the super early stage, you might need, you know, a CTO by reputation, but when you actually have real revenue and showing, you know, good cash flow, then, you know, the, the investors can just look at the business and say, oh. This is a good business, and okay, we'll help you find the right team. You know, whoever that is. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think I'll I'll go back to I don't know I don't think that they know the difference between say a VP of engineering or a director of engineering and a CTO. And so yeah. again, <laughs> if you're if you're sort of self designated as the CEO, then I need my technical co founder. Then they must be a CTO, and, and they haven't really thought through what those different roles are and the responsibilities and. Yeah, my CTO is going to code my product. Okay. Right, <laughs> right exactly. 
I want you to cover my product and you can be, we can call you the CTO. Right. And that's, the, that's the other problem I have is when, they, when, when that early stage CTO comes in and um, the company does start generating revenues and the, the viability starts setting in, that person is still seen as the person who came in coding for free. Right. And isn't doesn't have the seat at the strategic table and 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 I had an amazing conversation just two days ago where the CEO was asking he wanted to give his CTO some advice on how to measure which parts of their app is being used and and and, and he was trying to tell his CTO which tools to use and and I was like, okay, I think I think it's a little lopsided. I feel like the CTO should come to you and say, listen, this is how we're going to measure right. tooling-wise what's going to happen. And then he said to me, well, I want to do the business decisions, and then I want him to make the tech decisions. And I, then again, I was saying, because tech needs to support business, the more your CTO knows about the business, the closer aligned the tech is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. But there just seems to be this archaic view that I'm the one with the idea, I'm the CEO, I have the product idea, I founded the company, I just need someone to go and build that for me. When really you're asking for a collaborator who might not fully agree with, with what you want to do. I, I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> and, you know, one of the symptoms I've seen is, you know, you'll see, you know, fairly large organizations get to the point where the CEO they, they haven't hired a product manager. Like they think they're the product manager and the, they're going to, they're going to have their vision and that, you know, the engineers are going to go off and build that. And you can see a lot of symptoms of that. Um, well, and good luck trying to explain what a product manager does to a lot of, you know, business executives too, right? Like getting buy-in on why product matters and why it exists. That's tough. I was mm -hmm. going to ask the same question about, you know, whether they've hired a CTO, I, I was wondering if you get involved at all and, and whether the technical due diligence really is about, well, what you really need is, you know, product management. That's very common. <laughs> well, I think, like, in particular, I think San Diego, I think, is a little bit behind in terms of product management practices and design practices and, and some of these things that are, are not only core to the product, but these days they're core to the business as well. Right. So that's a lot of the stuff that my company teaches is, you know, lean innovation space is getting out and understanding the customers and all of those type of things. And you can't really separate things into the technical side of the house and the business side of the house anymore. They're, they need to be integrated. Yeah, I, I have this like pet theory, you know, like if you look around, there are a lot of very experienced VPs of engineering CTOs because that's kind of the ceiling. Like they don't want to go any more than that. They don't want to be CEO. They want to they, they just want to run the engineering team. So many PMs end up evolving into the CEO role. Like they go off and start their own company. They, they, they get hired into a CEO role. So like you just don't have that depth of experience. You know, the bench strength isn't quite there. Mm -hmm. And you're right, San Diego even more so. Whereas up in Seattle, you've got Microsoft or Amazon producing, you know, large organizations, tons of PMs, really good training, really good structure there. The Bay Area is kind of, kind of weird, but tons of PMs there too, at least experienced ones who've made all the mistakes. San Diego, you just don't see that, you know. Um, yeah, we're, we're starting to see a little bit of it because of Intuit, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, uh, Intuit's always had really strong product management, and so that they're getting back out, you know, out into the community. But yeah. I was also fascinated recently. Um, I feel like when it comes to matters of technology, a founder, a non-technical founder might have a healthy respect 
for well i can't do the technology i don't understand the technology so there's sort of that acknowledgement okay i can't do this i don't see that on the product side right. on the product side there's not a i actually can't do this because there's a discipline and there's a classical and this it's like no i can do the product we just add this and we do yeah. this and the people want this and and so i think the um the uh the flip, not the flippancy, but just the the recklessness with which people often say products need A, B, and C, uh, then hoping that technology can quickly go and do that. When 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 I was doing product management, we we, we talked about what I came up with as architecture. <laughs> so there was an engineering equivalent of it that was called our architecture. <laughs> Tell us about tell us about Moves the Needle, Brant, CEO, founder of Moves the Needle, New York Times bestseller. Well, so Moves the Needle basically brings what we call the entrepreneurial spirit to very large enterprises. And, and by entrepreneurial spirit, we talk about a combination of design thinking for the empathy work. Uh, lean startup uh, brings uh, some of the rigor of, of experimentation and then um, looking at the evidence in order to make decisions about what you should be doing next. Uh, we also put that into sort of an agile late, light framework. So the way we organize the teams and, and uh, is a, using agile principles. Um, we don't go and do scrum like for engineering groups or do scrum for even other uh, parts of the, of the company, but they are adapting the agile principles using some of those methodologies so that you're figuring out how to balance between what are the things that we need to execute on and what are the things that we need to go out and learn about using the empathy and the experiment techniques? Um, so we work with innovation teams, product teams, commercialization teams, uh, really from the front line to the to the C-suite in in learning how to uh, implement some of these ideas. And then the uh, I mean the, the the word that stands out there for me is empathy. Uh, is that sort of the first thing that that these teams sort of lack or or, or might not be aware of that they lack? Well, it goes. It actually goes back to the way you were describing how uh, often these startups divide up the company, and you've got the technical side, and you've got the product side, and of course, as you get more mature, you've got the customer support side, and the sales, and the marketing, and we define rules about what are those people allowed to do, and how are they allowed to interact with each other, and so sort of the more mature the company is, including startups, the fewer people that are allowed to talk to customers, and so... Uh, so that's how you start creating these silos and a company becomes less and less agile because they have no idea really what problems they're solving for. Um, I was at a lean software uh, conference one time and this, uh, this influential lean software woman, Mary Poppendick, was talking about, you know, at some point, engineers are supposed to be engineering solutions to problems, not just writing to specifications that somebody else gave to them. And so I think that hopefully... Uh, using these lean innovation principles, we're, we're getting back to that. So yes, engineers themselves should be going out and getting empathy for the customers because then when they go totally back, agree. yeah, when they go back to build products, they're actually building solutions for people's problems. Absolutely. Like I'm a huge, I love everything you just said, could not agree more. Um, I wanted to like applaud during that, but obviously <laughs> we're on, that's not going to translate well. But yeah, I totally agree. Um, getting the engineers close to the stakeholders, getting the engineers to understand the customer, the why we're doing things, not just, hey, someone hands you this project, they'll go code it up, code monkey, you know what I mean? But 
um, because engineers are smart people too. They're going to come up with product innovations. They're going to have ideas that work. They're going to, you know, everyone in the company should know that. You know, your engineer. So where, should, do, where does the product product management fit into that? They're attached at the hip to your technical leader, and they work hand in hand on on everything. Because I, I when I was CTO of my my startup. Um, I started doing open allocation as a form of agile principles in uh, implementation of agile where uh, engineers could basically pick what they wanted to work on mm. and projects had to be written in a way that was enticing for the engineer and it include the problem being solved, the innovation and all that. So, so projects were competing for people, not people competing for the cool projects. Anyways, but that did require a level of empathy for the product. And what I started seeing and was a general resistance for the amount of hours and energy it takes from coding with your headphones on, determining your own day, your priorities for your day, to being into this, thrown into this crazy world of conversing and debating and un analyzing and understanding to the point where my engineers basically said to me, oh, we don't want to do this anymore. Just tell us what to code mm -hmm. because it's too way. exhausting yeah. to have all that empathy. It's way too exhausting. Well, you know, at a certain scale, it just, you know, the, the, the you know, peer to peer just doesn't work. You need to put an intermediary, you know, you need to, whether it's the product manager or the engineering manager or support or somebody needs to translate that noise or maybe use a system you know there are various systems online forms and turn that into data that you know is actionable like hey here's the priority feature list we put this on some you know some form and the customers voted 10 to 1 to go you know hey let's let's just go do that let's knock that out and make those mm. guys happy right um but they don't want to sit there and you know have all those conversations and you know mm. feel like they have to have 10 calls to, to justify what they're about to do. Yeah, so. I, the way I try to think about it or get people to think about it is it's based upon the level of uncertainty. And so if you can run a digital experiment in order to determine what color a button should be, you know, you don't need to go do empathy interviews for that, right? And so we already do that type of that split testing. Um, it could be, though, that there's, uh, there's a user story. Hopefully the user story has been you know, maybe it's been written by the product manager and that product manager has gone out and validated that. So they've actually done a bunch of the work to validate the user stories. But when it comes to actually implementing it, there, there may be questions that the engineers themselves have about what is the best way to implement. And maybe they can learn something by just going and visiting the customer environment. And so it's sort of having the self-awareness of around, yeah, I could just write up a feature and maybe it'll work and maybe it, it, it won't. Um, but is there something that I could actually go learn deeper and no, I don't have to go hug my customers, but what I'm trying to do is understand the environment and understand the problem deeper so that then I can go back to my team and design the right solution. But on stuff where there's very little uncertainty, we know what we need to build, then yeah, you know, there's no reason to call up a customer and, and, and validate that on the phone. That, that's just a waste of time. That's a great point. And, and the nature of the product may tell you, you know, you know if, it's a, if it's a consumer facing product that the developers would use themselves, like if it was iOS or something and they're, they're power users of it, there's not, you know, they can empathize pretty clearly. I mean, they may need to gather more data, maybe their own personal opinions are too biased. But you know, if they're if they're, you know, working on something like real estate brokerage services, and they're not a real estate, like they probably need to spend a little extra time, you know, understanding that market, understanding those folks and getting a little bit more empathy, because that's just not their daily, you know, 
they don't have any frame of reference to kind of understand that. So yeah, you're right. It really just depends on how much they need it. And if you're adding features to a, a, an existing product, then that's less uncertainty than developing mm -hmm. a, a new product. So yeah. yeah, I think it's just if people think think about it in terms of the you know this continuum of a level of uncertainty sort of dictates how much of that empathy and experiment work you should be doing. And so uh, the so the, just thinking through teams uh, of engineers and product people, and then uh, juxtaposed or engaging customers uh do you have a sense for what a good team looks like is com composed of is it I, I really like the idea of customer visits in as much as it helps developer with uh, developer empathy um I, I know firsthand what it does for my engineers when i see them using the product that they're building um but how does one structure a team so that you keep fueling that product innovation without dicking around with the engineering productivity? And, and, and I, what I see the most, the worst case of that is where there's sort of this distrust that starts forming between the product advocate and the implementers. And, the, you know, like how, how, what, how does one con compose that team so that you have a healthy sort of flow? customer product output you know you know how how does that work yeah i don't i don't think there's a right the or wrong reflect, way let the record reflect everyone left the room everyone's <laughs> backing up away from the mic <laughs> um, there's there's no right or wrong way you know some people are still doing waterfall most people are in agile agile with small teams um you know, there's a there's a fairly well-known set of blog posts, videos from Spotify showing kind of their their tribes and chapters, and you know how they have an engineering manager with a large number of engineers, but they're all split up into kind of feature-oriented groups. You know, five six developers at most, with a product owner and maybe a scrum master, maybe not. Someone takes that mantle. There are different ways to do it. I think. The pattern that is common across all of these agile teams is just small teams owning their own sort of independent project, being able to release frequently. Everyone's trying to, you know, speed up the pace of innovation and by releasing, really committing that code, saying, I'm confident enough to get that into production. And by the way, everyone take a look, you know, we, we've, you know, check us, make sure that what we're building is right, even if it's behind a, a feature flag or not. Um, so these are all just common ways to iterate in efficient small teams, giving the, the, the team independence, giving them sort of ownership. It's almost like the military, you know, the U.S. military versus like the old Soviet. You, you have small independent teams taking initiative versus like this very top-down command infrastructure, you know, trying to push that Right. The, the two analogies I use are the, the is the Spotify model, but then the special forces model is the other is the other thing. You're you're given a mission so who do I need on that mission? And so if you're, you're working on, again, if you're working on low uncertainty uh, parts of the product and you're assigned a, a metric typically in the Spotify model, so you have to move this metric, then you're going to go and choose the right people in order to, for that autonomous group to move that number. Um, if you are working on something uh, that was in the, that was in the marketing funnel instead of in the in the, a product improvement, you still might need engineering people on there or, or technical people in order to design experiments or to do prototyping or, or something like that. And so the, the makeup of the team might include customer support and sales and marketing and a couple of engineers, but it's driven by the metric and what the desired outcome is. It makes me think of that concept of mob programming kind of where you're like, 
I'm going to get everybody I need in the room together working at the same time to accomplish this task. And whoever we need to pull in for that, that's how we're going to do it, which is, I, I think, think is what, the best way. Yeah, I think what I, what I struggle with in that sense is that you're giving a lot of people a voice that maybe shouldn't have a voice. That should, that should be worked out in the team yeah. dynamics, though. So if you're right. Well, actually, maybe we should just ignore Etienne on that one. <laughs> well, I'm like, so you're saying like we should keep you off this team. That is what you're telling me here. I'm saying that there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of people who are super passionate and they think they know what the answers are, but they just don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But shouldn't the team dynamic actually figure that out? I think that the team, what if the team is not strong? I mean, you've had introverts on there. You have, um, I mean... Well, to me, if if uh, hopefully the nature of of the agile practices that you've put into place actually give voice to the introverts, and uh, that if somebody is is wildly out of their league, that that will be taken care of by mm-hmm. the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we could use this table again as an example. If we <laughs> wanted to. You know, I I it, it's funny again because I, I hear that like oh that guy you know just we don't want to hear from the but. But it's kind of like democracy. You kind of want everyone to have a voice. You want a period where everyone has their say. Not everyone has decision-making power, right? There are a few people who will say, great, we've heard from everybody. This, this was the time to, you know, speak your mind. All right, we're gonna, here are the people who are going to go off and make a decision now. Great. Thank you. So, you know, let those folks have their say. You know, otherwise it's just going to, it's just going to, mm-hmm. you know, you know sit there and, and turn toxic, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, maybe mm-hmm. not always, but, you know, it can. Um, but that, you know, I think, I think you want that bottoms up culture, especially among the engineers, you know, we we all know engineers are very smart, very opinionated, uh, very successful all through their careers to get to that point and they want to have their say, but then, you know, it's sort of, what's the alternative anyway? I mean, that that person that, uh, is way out of their league might be your boss. And, and if they're actually just in a hierarchical institution is, is making the decisions, then that's not, a, that's not a great way to go either. I agree. So, so, so then what do we do as, as CTO types? I mean, now our job becomes having everyone feel included, but then still go and do what we think we should be doing. But it's not – again, the – what we were saying is that the teams are given a very specific mandate and they've got a product owner who's driving what the outcomes should be. So it's not like a free for all. And it's not about like the desired outcome is not that everybody feels included. I think that that's a, that's a, Mm. that's a agile principle that we want people's voice to be heard, but the desired outcome of the project is not people feel included or else, you know, you're not really a, product company anymore right there need to be goals and and, and objectives at the company level and every team should try Which to I align think mi- to that i think the misunderstanding then could be you're so trying to have a culture of inclusivity and conversation and collaboration that the product ends up being completely schizophrenic because certain things are important to certain people and then you try and manage that for everybody. But yeah, right. everything can't be a decision by committee. That like never works, right? <laughs> right. So some, But is that some where point. the product manager has a strong voice then? Like, listen, I know, I know you want this, but this is not what we're going to do. Yeah, the, the PM should be one of the decision makers. There should be some, some clear data showing why certain decisions, you know, certain priorities are made, you know, one project over another. Um, absolutely. And they should be mapping the outcome of that project or whatever that team is working on to whatever priorities they've been given by 
by management. I mean, I think that the one of the advantages, potential advantages of these type of structures is that the work that teams do can be tied directly to the desired outcomes on a company level. Whereas I think in a hierarchical method, typically we're measuring performance based upon KPIs, what are the repeated tasks that individuals are doing. And we hope that if everybody does their repeated tasks, that the outcome is what our strategic priorities are. But if, you, if you're running a, a, a Spotify group and they're supposed to be moving the active user, the engagement metric for a particular part of the product, uh, then you're going to be able to map that to you know, reducing churn or increasing subscribers. And, and so that's more money and you tie that to the objectives. You can actually draw straight lines instead of just sort of this magic. We hope that this work will result in that, those right. outcomes. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier, just talking about being a data-driven company, you know, doing the experiments, having reason and, and, and you know, data to back up those decisions. So it's less about, well, my gut says this or I think that. Right. You can you lean into that, you know. I was going to add, um, you know, ultimately all of this stuff is is to be able to recruit, retain, and engage your most talented employees, if not all of your employees. Like all of this stuff, whether it's pretty offices, you know, kombucha, all the stuff you do, it's like keep them happy and engaged, yeah. right? Because that's business-wise, you're going to get the most productivity out of a team who's totally into what they're doing, challenge that, you know, however, whatever whatever it takes to keep them engaged. And, you know, if, if they need to speak up and have their say, great, let them do that, but then steer them towards, as, as Brant said, you know, the objectives that the company has uh, set out, make sure they're not way off course and totally deviating from that. Um, absolutely. So we here we have a bunch of CTOs talking about culture. I mean, so I'm curious now when you go into the, the companies that you're working with, is do the culture culture things come up as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a key area to kind of evaluate and and, and it's, and it's the right thing for someone like myself, a former CTO to do, because it's hard to understand what, what is a good culture. Ultimately it's about recruiting retention and, and, you know, happy developers, happy technology folks producing a lot and going to produce more, um, you know, that the investors will end up caring about and vice versa. If there's a, a really horrible, toxic, environment with low morale and there's a high turnover rate you're like ooh, that's a red flag uh, if i'm an investor i don't i don't know if i want to you yeah, know really no matter how well the product's doing at that point because oh, yeah. that there's some that's a pretty big red flag right mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. is that uh so in in this world of investment and all that it's, it's all about the engagement right engaged users um, you, you're talking. I was talking about the employees. No, no, but yeah, uh, yeah. On outside yeah. of that, sort mm -hmm. of when it starts coming to measuring the success of companies, it's that daily, active, engaged. Yep, yep. That's that's a frequent thing. A lot of these are this is it's business software. A lot of what I focus on. So sometimes that metric is a little different. You know, it's not like you know messaging software like Facebook, who has an incredible engagement number compared to you know say Twitter or something like that. It's hard to tell, but man, does that make Facebook that much more valuable? With business software, it's a little different. You know, there might be software that's used for compliance reasons. And so, you know, there's no user that needs to be in there every day, maybe once a month or a couple times a month or in response to certain compliance type questions. But the value to the business of each one of those is high. It's just not an engagement metric that is mm. a KPI. That's a key mm. thing for them to pay attention to. Love it. I want to go back. Let me ask you something <laughs> about the culture piece. Sure. So... Everybody always talks about culture. I'm curious what you guys think it's important to have, but how do you instill that in a company in the very beginning? What are your thoughts on how to start start a culture from scratch? I think you start meetings on time. 
Are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think. So I just want to. I want to kind of. I'm going to kind of ask that question with you. Um, sometimes the 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 joy of a startup relies so much on that founder's raw passion and excitement for the market that is being addressed. But they, you know, it makes them reckless. Uh, as far as nurturing and building up that that company culture, because left unchecked, the company culture can also become sort of more like, hey, we're, you know, we don't, you know, we just do meetings whenever, we show up whenever, we, you know, and and a lot of the old school, very successful entrepreneurs will say to me, start, make sure that you have regular meetings and that they start on time. And it's, you know, it, it just, Providing some level of structure, is that a way is, is to establish culture? Or, I mean, what is the blueprint? I mean, I think that's one element. I, I think it's a lot of things. And certainly having that self-discipline and professionalism instilled, which is, I, I think, the ultimate sort of value out of that is is a good thing, no doubt about it. Um, being Having open conversations and letting employees like, you know, challenge, you know, the executives, I think is a big, you know, so, so the early founders, no doubt, set the tone on culture and what they believe is the right way to run a company and how, you know, it ends up indubitably being how the culture is created. I think after a certain size, after, you know, getting to like 50 people and then getting your round where you think you're going to hire another hundred people, that's where you start codifying your core values, having the the corporate retreat, it sounds corny, the corporate retreat, but then just writing it down and saying, these are our five or six core values. Let's put it on our website so that when we hire people, they know what we're about. We know what we're hiring for, all of that. And you, you retain those values and in, 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 in what's important to the people who work there. So Yeah, I've, I've had to do all of that work even earlier. So we're at 16 employees and, and we've codified that quite a bit. Uh, and it's been it's been by demand. Um, we're a completely distributed company, which I think is part of it. I think that if you're if you're mostly in one place, then then the culture is formed by people's behavior. And so if you're uh, if you're a leader and your doors open and you actually walk the floor and you're talking to people and you're open and and you're sharing you know uh, sharing business things. Like I'm not a completely open book about financials, but I do want people to understand, you know, the performance of the company and those type of things. But if you're, if you're all in one place, then it really is the behavior that everybody sees and the behavior that people do that establishes that culture. In a distributed team, it's, it's way more complex. And so I think that that's why we codified that uh, really early, um, you know, a strong mission statement, strong values. And then over time, you start, you start adding what the expected behaviors are that are mapped to those values um and then it, it also does evolve and you figure out that the way you've codified it maybe does isn't working right and so you have to you have to make changes um i think that uh i don't know i guess i still struggle with it um i think that i've always been one that really has tried to empower people but you actually have to teach people how to be empowered. And so I had to learn that myself, you know, I had to learn that that that's actually an active step. Um, and it's sort of counterintuitive in that way. So I think we all, and, and you actually, there's a personal accountability on the other side that, that 
your employees are also actively creating the culture. And so they have to understand what their role is in the culture creation. So it's, it's, uh, it's super interesting. I think it does have to start right away. And, and uh, yeah, I wish there was a blueprint. I asked the question because I think it's a lot like we were talking about product earlier where so many people talk about culture and they, you know, they think culture is like the perks that you have. Culture is, oh, we let people bring their dog to work. You know, that's our culture. It's like, no, it's it's all these other things that we're discussing that are really important. But similarly with product, I, I think people just don't really know they or they're thinking about the wrong things or, you know, how do we how do we get people to understand that better? Yeah, I think. um uh, just as a founder of my small company, um, how many decisions I make every day where I can either choose to just do it myself and answer the question they're asking versus, hey, uh, you know, what would you do And without being patronizing? But yeah. just like, hey, so you, you can totally make that decision and invite people, like you said, teach them how to be empowered. There's so many great leadership books out now. I, I think we've, we understand so much more these days about leadership and the psychology of management and of how people work together. Uh, and so I, I don't know, three or four years ago, I never read any of these books and now I'm reading all of them. And, uh, and so I think it's really great. I think we've learned a lot about uh, how to manage and empower and motivate and, and reward People. So I think it's definitely an evolving, an evolving science. Wow. Yeah, the uh, um, uh, the couple times that I've been through a challenging time with with my people, uh, where the temptation is to say, "Well, now I'm taking that responsibility away," or "I'm taking you away." Uh, if you can get through that, you know, I've seen people sort of break through a ceiling and oh, then yeah. realize, "Okay, I." I'm so valued that my voice is so much stronger at the table, and I'm seeing that big time right now. Yeah, that, that that is a great point. That you know, I I know personally, I've been guilty in the past of focusing on the mistake and not on the person's potential to learn and sort of overcome that long term. And you know, the, the you know, it's kind of cliche, but it's really when you when you just look at people and their potential, then you look at those situations a little bit differently, and you say, well, just give this is just a learning opportunity. Yeah. Just give yeah. them that chance and to grow thing, from that. And opportunity one, is like the operative word there, right? That's how you really have to think about it. One thing that has helped me tremendously with that has been to see the breakdown, not in that person's trust in me or my trust in them or their loyalty to me. But to see the breakdown in the process, to just say, oh, the process failed us because, yes, you made an assumption. It just means that you read the SOP differently than I did. So we actually focus all our attention now on checklists and playbooks. And and it's been unbelievable to codify the company in terms of these SOPs, which, you know, SOPs 1970s, right? But <laughs> But it gives you an incredible opportunity to just say – it's not you, it's the process. And then to, to how do we upgrade or optimize that process? But it's got nothing to do with my faith that you can do this job. And then that's where I said, you know, I've seen, I've seen multiple times in the last couple of years how that has completely upgraded that person's voice at the table and their sense of ownership. So, so uh, Gary Ridge, CEO of WD40 here in San Diego, co-wrote a book uh, with Ken Blanchard, who is one of the really founding uh, 
thought leaders on service-based leadership. And the subtitle of the book is, Don't Measure My Performance, Teach Me How to Get an A. And I love that, and I just sort of, I, I think about that often. Teach me how to get an A. Right. So don't focus on oh. how well or poorly I did. Teach me how to do what it is that needs to be done. And I mean, coming back to culture, that's probably what it's all about. I'm not afraid of silences. <laughs> we were all just like really, you were going deep on your... on your. Just blew minds. <laughs> I was like, whoa, hold on. I got to reel it back in here. Well, so I could throw out a couple of other books. Uh, uh, Dare to Lead by Benet Brown. Uh, Multipliers is an amazing book. So you can teach other people how to be great leaders. And that's where you, you know, potentially get, you know, sort of this exponential type of uh, behavior. Um so I, I think that uh, I don't really know what what went down at Zappos, but remember a few years ago when the whole holacracy thing was kind of blowing up and like half the company left or something like that, and and my perception of that was exactly what 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 you were saying was that it was like oh well yeah our culture means that you know I don't have to come in eight hours a day and I get to do this and I get to do that and I'm all like well okay that's fair as long as you're having the impact that you're signed up to have right. and you have to be able to, you have, you have to have the, the great culture has to be with performance. If you're not getting the performance, then you can't have all of these. Yeah. There still has to be accountability and there has to be objective, right. right? So like I'm a big proponent of leading by objective. And if you can, you know, get that done being in the office at weird hours or, or whatever it takes, great. Like as long as we're meeting our obligations or meeting our goals. But I think a lot of people just, again, going back to the thing of, oh, well, culture means that we have all these great perks. You sort of like lose sight of the mission, and now you're just thinking about all this extra stuff instead of what we're all really here to do, you know? Right. But then how, but how does it, so how do you handle it when the objective is not met? So objective was, the, 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 the goal was clear, everyone collaborated, everyone made their agreements, you know, everyone's going to do their thing. And, but then, you know, Two months shows up, or two, with all their iterations, whatever, and and you, the company did not meet that objective. Well, in in software, the the objectives are often not met. It's yes. often late. Yes. So you know, there's there's this question. That, you know, when you when you brought up accountability, the first question was, well, who's defining what productivity? You know, you, it's so hard yeah. to measure productivity among developers. It's such a creative process. There are new requests or tweaks along the way you know it's like it's like I, I make the analogy to building a house when you have like change orders to like oh let's rearrange mm -hmm. the room let's put up you know it's like that slows things down that makes it much harder it's pretty everyone can intuit that software they they just don't get it like oh yeah we'll just throw a few buttons right. that'll be cheap right you know it's like no can't <laughs> we just, only code uh, isn't it a snippet of code like it's, you just copy paste that oh, from my somewhere goodness. else my ceo used to do sound effects you can okay. just drag it, floop, and it just go floop, and I'm just like, what are you doing, bro? You can just drag oh, it. I, I'm That's curious so that you get, like, how do you measure, how do you respond to somebody asking you, oh, are you being productive, is your team productive or not? Like, how do you try to quantify or somehow uh, relate to the rest of the business? Yeah. Who all invariably think it's not going fast enough, I'm not getting my features, da, 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 you know. Yeah, that's an endless battle. I don't have a great answer. I mean, I, we measure things, right? You look at burn downs and you look at, you know, w what's the output on a regular basis, sprint to sprint, and you look for like a big anomalies. So if something goes way down or something goes way up, you're like, hmm, why did that happen? 
but really you just kind of want to maintain a level there. And as long as that's happening, then you're probably yeah. doing okay. But <laughs> it's so hard to know. And you know, the business will ask this all the time. Like, are you getting the most out of the team that you can? I w- I How do you s- ever figure that out? You're right. And, 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 and I want to hear what you have to say, but what, I tend to look at symptoms as an indication of what's hap- how it's affecting productivity. And I know that when I, even as CTO, was not being that productive, certain things would start happening. Like I would, I would show up to the office less. I, would pro- I wouldn't be proactive about my communication to not my team, but to my C-suite. And, and I almost want to say... If you feel like you've been productive, there are certain things that you're going to do. Like you're, you're probably going to be slightly friendlier. You're probably going to be more inquisitive. You're going to feel good about yourself. I, think no, I don't think we are wired to feel good about ourselves if we haven't been productive. I mean, I think we are just wired to feel good about our work. And so I make a point, so as a, as a tactical thing, so I... For every company I help out as CTO, I have a CTO journal. And I make a point of pretending like I am every single day talking to my C-suite and I bullet point the, th- the work I did. And I, and I, and I, and I have, I have a, con- a rich conversation with them in my head, but in a Google Doc. And I've noticed that on the days where I didn't get shit done, because I was tired or because I was out of the zone or I didn't feel like I was in the flow, I don't update that document. And so I actually have a historical document where I can see um, how productive I, I've felt. And now one could argue, well, you could maybe not feel productive, but really you did a lot of work. So there's that ex- uh, extreme. But I would, I would sort of look at how, does, how is the team showing up as an as a as a canary in the coal mine kind of thing but how to actually quantifiably measure productivity i mean is it points in jira i mean <laughs> the question is is velocity is, is why i mean i think so i hate to go back i was to hoping the... for an applause by the way from oh i'm sorry but, okay <laughs> we're silently applauding we're, it's a consider it a golf clap uh <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, going back to Agile, I think that if you're doing sprint planning correctly, then your productivity should be that you're achieving what you set out to in your in your sprints. Um, and I think that early on, that's difficulty because you don't necessarily know what the cadence is. But over time, you should be estimating things better. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that the retros then also become important. So if people are doing regular retrospectives to figure out, you know, what went wrong and, and maybe do some five whys or just a two whys or a three whys, but sort of the, the the ongoing communication is what I think allows you to to look at the productivity and feel like whether you're actually achieving the objectives that you set out to achieve. And again, if those things are tied back to strategic priorities to the company objectives because it's rolling up properly to what those objectives are, then the productivity only becomes a concern when you're not hitting your, your objectives. Um, so I think that, uh, I think as a manager, you probably have to look at productivity, but again, it, it's, it's, it, it should come out of the team's performance first. And then that gives you a red flag, whether you should be looking deeper to see if there's somebody inside yeah but could you be productive and not hit 
the originally intended objective because you were productive? Be- because? I'm because not sure I was, was causal. Be- because I was productive. So I was productive. And my team was super productive. But it turns out we didn't accurately estimate. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. Constantly. So, or, or you don't hit the objective. People are terrible at estimating. But doesn't mean, does that mean that you weren't productive? No, not necessarily. But you could also totally sandbag your sprint and be like, we got everything done, we crushed it, and we only that's worked the, like That's 50%. the other problem, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's super subjective. It's hard to figure that out. Right. I think if we had, if we all had the perfect answer for that, we'd all be zillionaires and you know on a beach somewhere. And well, like, I feel like I do have the perfect oh, answer, good, and, and I'm not a zillionaire. Well, I mean, as far as we know. Well, we're all we're all we're all just ready to yeah, applause. To exactly. Say, you know. Lay it on us. Here we go. I think I did, and I already missed the opportunity for the applause. <laughs> yeah. You know, one, one interesting layer to add to this is that I, I think it, it is just inherently hard to measure engineering productivity or technology team productivity. It is easy to measure sales in terms of dollars, and it's very short-term tactical. Usually engineering is long-term strategic. Like the value comes years later, months later. You know, some things happen right away, but usually it's accrued over time. And you have usually in companies these very different cultures and mindsets among the executives there. And it's, you know, you ask why. I think there are plenty of short-term tactical-focused executives who are used to that environment who are asking the same standards being applied to engineering and you have to respond to that yeah yeah i I guess i i i sort of feel like i know where all of this is headed and we're just right in the middle of this change which is really difficult and so you've got the engineering group that's working in these agile methods using these sprints and and uh and and figuring out what their shorter term objectives are. And then you have the rest of the company that's essentially working in, in waterfall and feels like that um, engineering is still in the deliverable business. And so they're all sitting around and waiting. And I think that if, if instead uh, the whole company was structured based upon these agile teams, then you would be able to incentivize everybody in the company in a similar way to sales. Because again, if you're if you're running uh, a bunch of teams that are assigned different parts of the product and that they were very measurable outcomes to the work that you were doing that increases customer engagement or decreases churn or any of these other metrics that ultimately affect the company's finances, then those people can all be motivated based upon achieving those objectives. And, and a lot of the productivity, Problems go away because people are now motivated based upon achieving objectives are where they get some upside. Are you talking cross-functional? Yeah, I mean, because because right. what I want to say is, which, which might prove this, is every time we as a leadership raised sort of the revenue opportunity to and attached it to a feature. <laughs> that feels so wrong. But yes, what? Yeah. So a, it doesn't feel right because, like, hey, if you build this feature, we'll make more money. That, but, but a form of that always seemed to rile up the engineers to work extra, to work harder because they were inspired by the fact that what I'm going to work on now is actually going to help this company. Right. But it so always I'm, felt short term, or it always felt like I was blowing some equity. It's not. It's not being structured properly. So. So what they're doing when they don't do your everything engineering is still tied to revenue. It just isn't stated that way. What the way it's stated now is that if you guys build a hundred features, then we're going to make more money. 
And so that, that's like, there's no evidence of that. That's just, it's just, we're going to try this out. But if instead what, what you suggested is that these features are going to increase user engagement or people are going to uh, go from a standard plan to a premium plan in a SaaS model, or because we built this functionality, we reduce the number of people that dropped out. You're, you're not giving them a revenue figure. You're giving them a metric that you can sort of one layer beyond yes. that, you can tie to financial implications for the company. Which is, which is more than saying, hey, we want to hit our points estimate. So you take, you're not keeping them in the boiler room of the submarine. You're bringing them up to the deck and saying, hey, if we keep working, we're actually going to get to our destination outside of their domain. Right. So we've worked with a manufacturing company where the engineers are in the sprints as the, uh, with uh, sales teams, with salespeople. And uh, the management of the company is saying, we need to build this product, we need to do this, we need these features, and, all, and it's, all, it's all put on the engineering group, like as if the financial success and failure of the company is their responsibility solely. And what happened out of the sprint was that the salespeople weren't aware of things that were already in the product and they weren't aware of how to sell it. And they didn't, weren't aware of how to expose what the, that this functionality actually existed. And so what it became instead was the engineering training the salespeople on these type of things. They didn't have to build the product or the features. So I think what we forget mm -hmm. is that because we're all in these different silos, the communication is what's really lacking. And, uh, and so you can expose these things by going more cross-functional. And, uh, and, you know, if, if objectives, uh, things like that I mentioned before, that this particular product is being used in a particular way that you think is going to have a positive financial uh, result down the road, then that tells us what we should even be measuring. Well, are people using these particular features? If they're not, why not? Is it because it's too buried in the product? Maybe, but maybe it's also because nobody ever told them that existed. So there's, the thing is, is that when you have, when you uncover problems like that, you have a myriad different ways of solving the problem. Engineering becomes one part of totally, solving the problem totally. instead of the way it is now, in my view, it's often the product people are, are sort of blamed for the problem as opposed to actually having a cross-functional mm. team that's charged with moving that number. Move mm. that number. I don't yeah. care how you do it. And then, and then communication becomes that glue, like proactive communication to between and inter. And, um, I remember... Uh, one of my problems was we, we built 30 modules in our CMS and we, when we finally implemented analytics, we saw that people were only using three of them <laughs> and it was criminal the amount of resources as a small company we were applying to the, the, the 27 and specifically the one that we literally had below 4% engagement on and it was the one thing that people were getting fired over at our company. It's like, what the... Crazy, yeah. It's like I, half the time you add one feature, you should probably kill two others. You know what I mean? Like strip out the stuff that doesn't matter that people don't like. 
It is funny with, you know, KPIs on like knowing, like defining what success means for a project before and then seeing mm. those, you know, numbers move afterwards. It, it's so obvious, so clear. So few people do it. It's so hard to get teams to, to hold themselves accountable in that way. Um, and, and, you know, you can take a wild guess. Just put a put a stake in the, in the ground. You know, but just have something. Yeah. Well, so here's here's, you know, everybody in your audience can put into their next sprint plan just randomly choosing a feature and removing it. Yeah. <laughs> and if that, no, if nobody complained, yeah, then exactly. Then yes, yes. Exactly. you removed that feature six months ago. See ya. Okay, well, that was a good mic drop. Michael, Robert, Bront, thank you for being with me. Thank you. Thank you for Thanks. having us. See Fun discussion. Soon. Cheers. Cheers. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Hi, thank you for listening to the CTO Studio. If you don't mind, take a quick second and please rate and review the show. It helps us a lot. Go to thectostudio.com for more information on what we're doing at 7CTOs. We also have a video or two for you that could be a helpful resource for you as you're managing your company. So thank you for listening.